0: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Impress. I'm Emma Cooper. Last time we spoke to Dr. Paul Scoville in a two-part episode about his work Hunting for Dark Matter. This week we take a look at the fascinating world of food terrorism and malicious contamination with Dr. Sarah Kilbane. Sarah currently works at the School for Law and the Centre of Criminology at the University of Greenwich and completed her PhD at the University of Liverpool. at your thesis and published work, it's safe to say you work in a very interdisciplinary field. You look at crimes of poisoning, product tampering, and food terrorism. Can you summarise all the fields that you work in?
1: Sure. The field that I I, I work in is broadly in an area that combines elements of criminology, psychology, a little bit from other social sciences as well, and statistics and mathematics. So broadly, I look at uh, assessing risk, in different criminal scenarios or involving different crimes and predicting behavior associated with different types of crime. More specifically, over the past five years, my interest has been in the area of malicious contamination. So this is kind of an umbrella term that covers all different types of crime, from poisoning to product tampering, extortion, and food terrorism as well. More specifically, I've been working in the area of food protection and food defense over the past few years as well. And so this kind of specific area, requires input from a number of different disciplines beyond the social sciences. So including research from things like food science, chemistry, biology, marketing. So a lot of different areas coming together, feeding into this research.
0: Could you elaborate on this part of your work a bit more? Is it related to criminology?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Links in In a couple of different ways to criminology. One of the things in criminology when we're talking about crime is we have to start by defining what we mean when we're talking about these different kinds of crime. And so this is what uh, the paper I've recently published with my co author Margaret Wilson is on defining and sort of delineating between poisoning and product tampering. So it's something that on the surface, appears quite obvious. You know, Most people can come up with a clear definition to them of, of what a poisoning would look like, what product tampering looks like. But there's actually a lot of overlap between these two crimes. And so when we have trouble differentiating between criminal acts like this, it can be difficult for researchers to look into these crimes in more depth. But it can also be difficult for law enforcement when they're looking at investigating these sorts of cases
0: and and understanding what types of behaviour are associated with these different crimes. So a really broad spectrum of criminal research. Can you also explain the psychological aspects of what you do?
1: Sure. My background initially is in psychology and specifically in forensic or investigative psychology. And so when we're looking at a specific type of crime, in this case looking at cases of malicious contamination or or poisoning and product tampering, it's really important to understand what the behavior of these different perpetrators are and what kind of behaviors we see for those engaging in this type of crime. So why do these individuals target certain victims or go after certain corporate targets or government targets, and, and what do their actions say about their thought process, their planning process, what they know going into these types of crime, and also what they would like their outcomes to be, so, so what they're after, what, what kind of their motivation is. And so this links into not only predicting what outcomes will be in certain cases, So understanding when a case is likely to be a threat or a hoax alone versus when a case is likely to progress to potential harm. But also kind of working backwards and potentially involving offender profiling as well. So understanding uh, what the typical profile of a a poisoner is or what the typical profile of a product tamperer is.
0: Wow, this is so interesting. Uh, And now the technical part, the mathematical aspects of your work. Where does this come in?
1: The technical part comes in in that I I personally come from sort of a more positivist tradition. So I'm I'm really interested in quantitative analysis and what we can do with statistics to really understand criminal behavior. So I've used a number of different techniques some that have previously been used in the criminological or psychological literature, but also some that I've kind of borrowed from from neighboring disciplines as well. So I've used things that you might see commonly like time series analysis and some multi-dimensional scaling and unfolding techniques, but also the fitting of data to models that mimic randomness or show randomness in the data, and also some Bayesian statistics and Bayesian model building as well, which, which really focus on determining probabilities of, of future events occurring. With the mathematical modeling and, and the kind of techniques I've used, really, I, I'm, I'm not anywhere near a mathematician. I, I've, I just have sort of an interest in math. And like a lot of social scientists, I started out primarily looking at null uh, null hypothesis significance testing, kind of answer the questions that I've had uh, about my data. And I've sort of slowly drifted more towards a Bayesian way of thinking. So using Bayesian statistics, Bayes' theorem, and, and Bayesian model building to kind of answer the questions that I have.
0: You said some of your work focuses on the likelihood of threats of food terrorism. That also sounds fascinating. Could you explain a bit more about that and how the different areas of your work feed in?
1: Yeah, sure. So this is a project that I'm just starting work on. And so I'm kind of in the very early stages. But it does go back a little bit to what I was just talking about in regards to Bayesian model building. So looking at past events or what we know about a certain case and being able to predict outcomes based on our past knowledge. And so so one small element I've looked at previously is when perpetrators do make contact. So for example, in cases of threats of food terrorism or extortion attempts, what sort of language do they use in, in the threats that they make? And one component of this that I've looked at is the agents that they either use or claim to have used in these contacts that they make. So what type of poisoning agents are they claiming to use? And one of the really interesting things that we see from from my research is that historically, those agents that are the most fear-inducing and sort of the most kind of extreme biological agents are actually more likely to be used in hoaxes and threats than in actual cases of contamination. In the data set that I have, there were uh, quite a few cases involving the claimed contamination of food and water with HIV or AIDS, which we know is not transmissible in food, or in water, but these cases occurred kind of at, at the height of misinformation about HIV transmission, but also when there was sort of widespread public fear about HIV transmission. And so you see people trying to uh, capitalize on that fear in these cases, even though there's, there's no possibility of it leading to any sort of harm for, for the public.
0: So the idea is that you can often tell if something is a hoax purely because the method of which someone claims they're contaminating food or water won't actually have an effect. You'd think people would look up the viability of their threats before they make them. Anyway, so do you think this model could be picked up by law enforcement in the future? Sure. By putting this information together, um, we'll be able
1: to come up with usable probabilities. So if a person is claiming to use this agent, how likely is it that they're actually going to follow through with that? But we can tell, as I mentioned, from from things like, you know, when people claim to use actual diseases rather than the agents that cause disease, it's subtle differences there that you can say, okay, well, I think I know what's going to happen because really it's impossible for someone to Actually, contaminate a food item with HIV and have it be transmitted to someone else. So you can you can kind of use common sense logic and, and knowledge about really tying in biology, chemistry, and food science, and having a knowledge of how different agents are actually transmitted in this way, it can give you a good insight into what the outcome is going to be.
0: Okay, so where do you get this information from? Is it in the media, through databases, crime logs? Is it reliable? Obviously it's a new field so there might not be standard ways of, of collecting this information.
1: Yeah, one of the issues with research in this area is that, especially with my research, a lot of it has been based on open source data. So that's data that has been taken from media sources, from government reports, Uh, and conviction data, but also some information uh, taken from academic journal articles in other areas. So medical journals, for example, will sometimes publish these sorts of cases. But there is a a real issue in that it can be very, very difficult to get data directly from some of those individuals who hold data. So, for example, government agencies, law enforcement agencies sometimes are reluctant to give up this information, but also companies that have been victimized in the past And it's understandable why they don't want to give up this information. If these cases do become public, there is a problem with potential damage to consumer confidence, and uh, companies can lose money due to a wrongful association with with the brand being dangerous. So some of these cases aren't made public, which means that at the time we have to rely on open source data, even though uh, there are some issues with using it.
0: One of your papers is on the concept of copycat crimes. Now, you've already said that a lot of this type of crime isn't publicised to avoid public panic. It seems quite topical to recent media reportings of crimes. So in October 2016, there was a spate of creepy clown sightings that started in a small town in the US, they were widely reported in the media, and then copycat incidents, whether they were malicious or non-malicious acts, started popping up all over the country and even spread abroad. It certainly came here to the UK. So can you tell us more about this in your work? Do you see similar patterns of crimes of food contamination?
1: Yeah, I think it's certainly something that this idea of copycat crime really jumped out to me when uh, I, was, I was starting to study product tampering because it was something that I saw repeatedly in the literature but with no empirical data to back it up. So there were a lot of examples uh, sort of like this kind of creepy clown phenomena of um, seeing, for example, a, a, a baby food being contaminated in one location with broken glass and then it's spreading to other locations, um, spreading from the UK or from the US to the UK, uh, and seeing different cases spring up that are very similar in, in different areas. And so, actually, when we when we start looking at copycat crime, or the term contagion is sometimes used, especially when it involves terrorism, we see a number of crimes where there is empirical evidence to show that these kinds of criminal activities can be contagious or spread through time and from location to location. So there's been studies on things like aircraft hijacking, where we see that um, more successful or successful aircraft hijackings are likely to spawn future hijackings. We also see contagion effects with things like international terrorism but also things like arson, military coups, riots, so a number of different forms of violence, both political and apolitical. In this kind of same vein, uh, another example, kind of following nicely from the the creepy clown phenomenon, is especially in in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s, there was this widespread fear uh, about something that has been coined Halloween sadism.
0: I heard about this. Wasn't it something about reports of contaminated Halloween candy? So children were told only to take packaged trick-or-treat offerings rather than homemade ones.
1: Yeah, so really there's this idea that uh, when children go trick-or-treating door to door, um, that they're going to pick up an item of candy that's had, uh, you know, poison put in it somehow. Or a famous example is razor blades put in apples. Um, and, And so this became something that a lot of parents warn their children about, that there were actually kind of warnings and advice published in local newspapers across the U.S. But when actually you look at the data, Um, And this is from a study by Best and Horiuchi. uh, If anyone's interested in, in chasing it up, they looked at cases of Halloween sadism over a 25 year period and found that while there were 76 cases that they found reported, only two of them actually resulted in any serious harm. And actually, those two cases resulted in death. But actually, these cases were linked back eventually to family members and not sort of the random stranger who just wants to terrorize children by putting something terrible in their candy. And and so it's quite interesting because you see this hype and fear surrounding an incident like this and potentially a lot of copycat cases for people who want to be involved in this type of criminal activity, but they don't really fit in with what is actually happening. And so this does follow quite nicely as well with what I've seen with product tampering cases and poisoning cases. Because while anecdotally it's been said that product tampering is a copycat crime or a contagious crime, as I mentioned, there's no empirical evidence to back it up. But using a technique where I fit the data to uh, models of randomness, I've seen that when we look at all malicious contamination crimes, but also poisonings and product tamperings alone, that we can see that there is a contagion effect. So when a case becomes a high-profile case, it is likely that we will see similar cases appearing in the future as a result. Most of the researchers in, in this area will say that it isn't down to someone sitting at home hearing about a case of product tampering on the news and then thinking, oh, okay, you know, I've I've never thought about committing a crime before, but that sounds like a great idea. But more likely is that someone has the criminal intent, so they're already planning to do something. And then hearing about a case like this gives them inspiration for what to do and how to do it.
0: That was Dr. Sarah Kilbane. Sarah has written a blog for us where you can learn more about her work and upcoming publications, as well as how she got into this field of research. Link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Emma Cooper and Rihanna Guzzi. Our theme music is Blanks by Poddington Bear. Luca Morrill has drawn an illustration, which is this week's episode art. Link to her work and the illustration in the episode description. This is the Impress Podcast. Thank you for listening.